This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Stu Friedman. Welcome. Thanks so much for joining me. It's Work and Life, a conversation about everything related to work and the rest of your life. Your family, your community, our society, and your private self, your mind, body, and spirit. I am your host, Stu Friedman. I founded the Wharton Work-Life Integration Project over 25 years ago and the Wharton Leadership Program. And to learn more about my work in this field, you can go to totalleadership.org. Tonight, we've got a really wonderful guest, uh, We're going to be talking about two main topics about which she is a great expert. Uh, Recently, uh, Sue Ashford published an article in Harvard Business Review with a couple of her colleagues on the gig economy, and it's a really wonderful piece. And um, with the growth of the gig economy just exploding, what does that mean for people in it, for people who know people in it, for people who are managing uh, people in uh, gig uh, careers, let's call them. Uh, how, how do people find ways of thriving in those environments when they're so different than the corporate models that so many of us grew up knowing well and learning how to navigate? So that's that's the first part of our conversation. In the second half, we're going to focus on um, our guests' expertise and knowledge about how you grow as a leader and why it's a a useful thing for you to think of yourself as a leader and what it takes for you to uh, develop leadership capacity in yourself uh, and in others. So I am absolutely delighted to welcome Professor Susan Ashford to the show. But before we begin our conversation, let me just give you a little bit of background about Sue. She is the chair of the Management and Organizations Group at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan where she holds the Michael and Susan Jandernawa Professorship in Management and Organization. Her passion is using her teaching and research to help people be maximally effective in work settings. And she's done that in many creative and high-impact ways throughout her distinguished career. Her research has been published in all the leading academic journals, And in popular business media, in 2002, Sue was named a fellow of the Academy of Management, which recognizes the top 1% of scholars in the Worldwide Professional Association of 20,000 professors and practitioners who are in this field. Um, And that association, the Academy of Management, also awarded her the highly prestigious Career Achievement Award for Distinguished Scholarly Contributions to Management in 2017. There's much more I could tell you about Sue, but you're probably more interested in hearing from her directly. So let me just welcome Sue Ashford. Hi, Sue. Hi, Stu. Great to be on with you. Oh, it's so good to have you here. So there's uh, tons we could be talking about, but as I said in the the, uh, lead in here, I want to talk with you about, well, at least two of the topics that you are expert in. Uh, You've been researching individuals and organizations and how they can have positive impact and enriching lives for for decades. And uh, 
the just recently you published with a couple of colleagues a piece in the Harvard Business Review called Thriving in the Gig Economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's start with that. Um, what is the gig economy, and is it now what is going to be normal? Uh, well, the gig economy is, you know, when most people think of it, they think of uh, Lyft drivers and um, task rabbit doers. Mm-hmm. But in fact, there's a wide range of you know, uh, sort of more menial tasks to very complex tasks being done in this style. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's people who work independently outside of organizations Mm -hmm. um, on their own. They contract with organizations or sell directly to the market. And do you have a sense for what the scope is of people in those kinds of uh, roles in our economy today? Well, there's a lot of different estimates uh, Mm -hmm. out there because people are trying to get their hands around this. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, one estimate is that over one-fifth of U.S. workers work independently outside of organizations. Um, Two economists, uh, Katz and Kruger, uh, looked at this, and they said that growth in this sector accounted for all the net employment gain between 2005 and 2015. What? I know. And, so uh, all the gains came from the gig sector, if we can call it that, meaning that the rest was flat. That was their conclusion, or declining, and made up mm-hmm. for by gains in the in this sector. And you know, people estimate it'll be forty three percent by twenty twenty, which is just around the corner. Forty three percent of total. Yeah. So uh, I'm sorry, you you were about to say more. Well, um, you know, there was just an Ernst & Young report that came out uh, just recently that said, you know, 40 percent of the organizations are planning to increase their use of these kinds of workers in the next five years. Mm -hmm. You could see why the trend is happening. Mm -hmm. It's cheaper. Mm -hmm. Uh, You offload a lot of costs. Uh, Some with a Marxian bent would say it's exploitive Mm -hmm. uh, because you no longer offer benefits. You no longer offer any kind of long-term contract of, you know, psychological or otherwise that you might stay with the company and grow with it. So, you know, it's a different world. It's uh, When you said in the intro, it's different than what we grew up in, what mm-hmm. many planned for. Um, you know, we around Michigan took up a study of this a couple years ago, and we called it a study of the new world of work. But if you turn to young people, it's just the world of work. There's mm-hmm. nothing new about it. This is what they see. <laughs> it's just it's just elder folks writing about what seems new to them. When in fact, Correct. young people, uh, this is this is their reality. So it is now what is uh, for most young people. For many people, and mm. some are pretty comfortable with it, and some are not. You know, I usually start when I teach it. I uh, to undergrads, I start with that question: How Does it sit with you? Mm. And they were all over the map in terms of their comfort. You know, they recognize it's a reality. You know, they're not necessarily preparing for it. And, but it's going to take something different. I'm, right, I'm working on an article right now where we're invoking the Cheers theme song as the uh, intro to the article. Making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Because in this world, I think it's going to take more of, of people than 
the prior world, just because we don't have any norms, we don't have sort of laid out paths, Mm. uh, all of that is to be discovered, to be developed on your own. So getting require a level of proactivity, being in a place where everybody knows your name is something that you have to construct yourself. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Ah, so that is a different world than the one that that I grew up in, certainly, uh, and that um, people of a certain age are just not accustomed to that. So let's – you've done work on job insecurity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that that line of research, what what did you learn from that that's, that, helped, that informs your understanding of where we are now? Uh, with the growth of the of gig kinds of uh, employment uh, relationships? Well, it's interesting because that work was, like most of the work in our field, has kind of an, or, an assumed organizational context. Mm-hmm. You know, so we know that job insecurity contributes to poor mental health, poor psychological health, um, poor physical health, um, And the things we would study is, well, what could an organization do to Mm -hmm. reduce job insecurity for people as they go through a transition or a merger or this or that? You know, now it's going to be kind of a fact of life. In this study, we called it precariousness rather than job insecurity. The whole Your whole situation is just a little bit precarious. Mm. Could fall apart tomorrow, could be fine for the next five years. You know, and a little it's, there's some uncertainty about that that makes it, um, you know, sort of more emotion laden than than work sometimes is in an organization. Well, the uncertainty, no doubt, uh, creates all kinds of anxiety, right? In terms of how you're going to uh, feed yourself, provide shelter for your dependents, etc. So, so how do you advise people? To prepare, and then, and then this is probably going to get us into the, the the connections that need to be cultivated that you write about right. uh, in, in that recent piece on thriving in the gig economy. Uh, so, what is it that that people need to do to either be ready for this world of work, or if they're in it now, to uh, enhance their capacity to be successful on their own terms, however they define that, and, and to thrive in the other parts of their lives. Right. Okay. Well, I thought it just to back up a bit, it mm-hmm. might help your listeners if I just said a couple of words about this study that we did. Yeah. Um, because the people we talked to, uh, you know, were at the higher end of this gig economy. We mm-hmm. didn't talk to Uber drivers or Lyft drivers. We talked to independent consultants, independent analysts, independent graphic designers, all the way up to uh, novelists, painters, um, you know, sculpture, sculptors, Artists. You know, people that have been working in this way <laughs> for a long time. Yes. And people for whom this working in this way maybe is somewhat newer. There aren't as many sort of defined paths, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And it was an interview study. We, we, we spent an hour to two hours with each of these people just talking about how do you make your life work. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they have a lot of wisdom. Um, and it's really two parts. First is just understanding what makes this sort of both wonderful and 
stressful. We call the the title of the academic paper is Agony and the Ecstasy in the Gig Economy mm-hmm. um, because it contains both. And so there's a there's a couple of different conditions. One is you have a lot of freedom, and these people love that. They would not give up their freedom um, they, to work in an organization, uh, but that freedom puts you more in this precarious situation, so that's mm-hmm. difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, you get to make all the choices, but if you screw it up, you could fail. So there's more anxiety around those choices. There's there's no one to blame if you make wrong choices because you made them. Um, your boss didn't tell you to do it, and you knew it was a stupid idea all along. <laughs> you made the choice, mm-hmm. so there's so. nowhere to hide your ego. Hmm. And then it, it's also... Probably learn that, faster, though, as a result, right? Pardon me? One probably learns faster as a result of having uh, to assume responsibility for decisions and choices about, you know... Yeah, what, that's a good point. I would think that's true, mm-hmm. both because they think it through and then they attend more carefully to the results. Mm-hmm. And, and have to uh, attribute their own intention, their own decision to the result. Right. It's also creates a level of personalization mm-hmm. that is both um, enlivening, you know, like you choose what product to put out in the market. If you're a, a ceramicist, you choose to make blue pots rather than brown pots. And then if blue pots don't sell, you know, it kind of stings. But, you know, if the market is loving what you're doing, it's very affirming in a way that being a cog in a wheel in an organization maybe isn't. So it's mm. it has both elements, the good and the bad. Mm-hmm. And what we found is that that people express way more emotions than when you typically talk to typical people in organizations. So more highs, more lows, and more oscillations between highs and lows, mm. swings mm. in their day, their month, and their year. Now is that because you had a preponderance of artists in your in your sample? We didn't have a preponderance, but we did have a preponderance of knowledge workers. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's probably the biggest category. So mm-hmm. it's knowledge and creative workers, and it's mm-hmm. where you draw the line on who is creative versus knowledge. Um, you know, like is a consultant a knowledge worker or a creative worker? Mm-hmm. They're a little mm-hmm. bit of both, depending on how they do consulting. Um, right, right. So they had so both you know big highs, big lows in their working lives. Yep. Um, and and what did you glean then from this study in terms of what they did to uh, to to be able to thri- thrive in in their in their um, precarious independent roles? Right. So the next thing we found was that the highs and lows were correlated, uh, associated with whether they were being productive or not, whether they were moving the work forward. Hmm. So, you know, if they were being productive, they tended to feel pretty good about their work life. If they were not able to be productive, they started to feel bad, started to have kind of an identity crisis. Like, am I really, uh, you know, a consultant if nobody is calling me and I'm sitting alone in my living room? You know, those kind of identity questions would come up. Mm -hmm. And the ways they coped were fourfold, and they were really interesting, and to me it's it's four things people can keep in mind if they work in this manner and um, 
and and try to create. Let me let me just pause for a moment and uh, remind listeners you're listening to Work and Life on Business Radio Sirius XM 111. I'm your host Stu Friedman, and I'm talking with Sue Ashford, the brilliant professor of management and organizations at the University of Michigan, who's talking with us about her research on the gig economy and what people do to thrive in it. So, Sue, you were about to say what you found about how people do that. Yeah, so they created four different types of connections. And when those connections were stronger, they were able to be more productive Mm -hmm. and to feel alive within their work. So the first was a connection to um, other people. So this kind of makes sense. You you know, you have someone, you have a support network, you know, for some people it was their spouse, for other people it was their editor, for other people it was other consultants that they had a connection with. But someone you could turn to when things looked dark and get support um, and people you could help and feel good about yourself for doing that. So that was one connection. Mm-hmm. The second was to place um, these people were very thoughtful about where they worked and how that uh, sort of fed their ability to be productive. One consultant described his workplace as not something he planned to go this way, but he, he goes, I look around and it looks like the cockpit of a fighter jet. And so you just imagine this person having to make his way in the world today, and there's all this precariousness, and he sits in his workplace, and it makes him feel stronger, more potent. He's in a fighter jet uh, playing cockpit. Um, in control another, of his... Yeah, in control. He's navigating uh, and, yeah. so and, and has a he sense feels of... the most vulnerable, and mm-hmm. he set up his workplace to reinforce what he needs. Mm-hmm. Another woman said she writes, she does all her writing in her bed in the morning. She just gets up, she starts writing, and she only goes to the computer, goes to anything else later in the day when the real creative work is done, but she needs that nestling in there. Another woman said surrounding her writing, and this this woman is actually a pretty famous novelist, Mm -hmm. and surrounding her writing in her office are reminders of important connections, affirmations that she's received that kind of reinforce for her, you can do this, Hmm. this is going to be great, that kind of thing. So that's place. Hmm. Those are two, people in place. The third is routine. And the people in place, they're sources of sustenance, right? And uh, as as well as guidance, inspiration, that, that these individuals are uniquely creating for uh, to meet the needs that they have, that they know that they have, and so, so somehow they've figured out, right? That, that there's some process of of reflection, of introspection, of growth, where they figured out that they need the, these sources of sustenance. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So one of my co-authors is uh, John Piero Petriglieri, and he's a trained um, psychoanalyst, mm-hmm. and his idea is that organizations actually form what those psychoanalysts call a holding environment. And a holding environment started out for all of us when we were babies with our mothers. Our mothers Mm -hmm. created safety where we could feel emboldened to explore, but we uh, we got sustenance as well and safety. So safety and 
and exploration. Mm -hmm. And organizations do that a little bit. They kind of hold us in the sense that if I didn't come to work, somebody would notice, right? I come to work, there's my name on my office or my cubicle. You know, I have a rooted place. Mm. But when you're in the gig economy, you've lost all of that. And so what we think we've learned from this interview study is the people that are successful in that economy have learned to recreate mm -hmm. that kind of holding environment for themselves out of their own proactivity. So it's it's connections to people, connections to place. What are the other two sources So the other of one connection? is routines. Mm -hmm. um, this idea of doing things in a similar way each day so that even mm -hmm. if you're not feeling it, you're actually feeling quite anxious and not wanting to work, you just start in your routine. And after a while, you're kind of back into the flow of it and can keep going. Um, and that seemed pretty important to them to kind of manage some of these uh, more deeper anxieties that would come up. And the final one is... Hang on. I want to hear more Good. about routines. Okay. Uh, which was your favorite among the routines that you learned about in this study? Well... So there's one woman, she's a consultant to many corporations, and she said, I start each day with a bath. Hmm. Now, I would never start my day this way. You may not. Why not? Either, but I, I'm in too much of a rush and half asleep, but this is how <laughs> she starts her day. She takes a bath, uh -huh. and she thinks about, how do I want to be in this day? Uh -huh. um, and she kind of... Setting that intention. That, yeah. Mm -hmm. She uses that routine to mm -hmm. create an intention to have herself be situated, and then she gets up and, you know, out and confronts the day uh, with that mindset. So that one, hmm. that one stuck with me. Talk about um, a holding environment, right? Just I, that's, that really brings that uh, image into, into yeah. relief, the, you know, the, the container of the tub, the warm, yeah, <laughs> uh, like a womb. Yeah, a little bit like a womb. Yeah, that's true. I was going to see if there was one other, um, you know, the, the, the quotes in the academic article are yeah. just beautiful, you know, because we have a lot of uh, more space to roam in there from them. Uh -huh. Another person says, I keep the same routine even when I'm on the road. I exercise, I pray, I do work in the morning when I'm at my best. It's simple things like I get dressed for the office. I don't sit around in my jammies or exercise gear. Mm -hmm. In the summer, I wear shorts when I'm not on the road, but I still shower and shave as if we're going to a workplace separate from the home. Mm -hmm. And he said, the discipline makes sure I don't get distracted. Um, yeah. I, I recall hearing about E.E. E. Cummings, the great poet. He had a place in Greenwich Village, uh, and he would get up and get into his suit <laughs> and his hat, and he'd walk around the block and come back into his house and walk up to the third floor and begin his workday. I love that. <laughs> so so uh, routine to keep the rhythm, to keep – well, what else do the, do the routines do? How do they provide that, that sustenance and that encouragement, that, uh, that uh, familiarity, the, 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 well, the comfort that allows people to keep going? Yeah. Well, they do two things. One is they kind of constrain the self. Mm -hmm. You know, they bind the self to the work. You know, you're going to be the routines put you in the work rather mm -hmm. than in your anxiety or in, you know, ancillary things or in your procrastination, which, you know, people fall into very easily. Really? Then, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <yeah. And> then, <laughs> 
they also kind of liberate the self through the work because you are hmm. bringing that focus and you find, you know, your creative self feels like it's expanding because you're, you're, you know, you're doing the work and you start to feel, you know, mm-hmm. uh, more like you're, you're, you're setting it free to kind of be what it's going to be and grow how it's going to grow without being fettered by everything you're anxious about. So these, so so the routines are are part of the container for that, and and yep. all four of these things kind of create the container. So there's there's people, there's place, there's routines. There is a fourth that you told us about. What yep. is that? And that's purpose. Ah. And that's probably the one that is the most you know talked about in other places, this idea that, Everywhere. Um, yeah, of having a purpose, having a life purpose, et cetera. But for these folks, it was a little bit, um, the purpose really had a, uh, uh, a purpose of, uh, both orienting. Mm. I'm doing this kind of work, not that kind of work. And again, they're coping with a lot of freedom. So, you know, they'll, they say things like it served as a barometer for the work I'd say yes to and no to, right? Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, this doesn't line up with, with who I am. Um, you know, I can give you names of other people. And then it also um, served to elevate what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like one, uh, one of our interviewees was a, a consultant to songwriters. So he helped songwriters and song um, you know, people get their songs published, et cetera. And he said, it was Ronald Reagan who said, he goes, no, actually it was Peggy Noonan who said <laughs> through the mouth of Ronald Reagan, mm-hmm. America is a song culture. That's how we get so much of our values. And then he went on hmm. to say, I think that's important that I could influence the culture through good songs. So you can think, hmm. hey, I'm just a, a guy doing a gig, trying to get some money to, by helping songwriters. Or you could say, I'm participating in creating, you know, America's culture and uh, and in you know helping instantiate mm-hmm. that in the minds of everyone else. Peggy so Noonan, by the way, for listeners who might not know who that is, was a, the uh, primary speechwriter for Ronald Reagan mm-hmm. uh, back in the day. So the so so I'm sorry, you you were saying that uh, the. It's it's a kind of reframing of what one does. Yeah, it's just a choice. You can look at it one way. I'm a schlub trying to make money for my family, mm-hmm. um, or I'm I'm uh, you know uh, changing the world and reinforcing and strengthening our culture mm-hmm. through uh, in, you know contributing to the song culture. So, to a choice. So for people who are in you know uh, more let's say you know. Uh, to, to nail, you know, just, you know, more gritty kinds of, uh, you know, scraping together a living worlds like Uber drivers, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, how does this relate, this model? Well, you know, I mean, in a strict academic sense, you know, if you were a journal editor, I, I couldn't say it relates at all, right? But because we didn't interview them. Right. No, but I'm, um, I'm not serving that capacity not. now. If I were to extrapolate. <laughs> I'm just thinking about people who might be listening while driving their Ubers yeah. right now. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, the, I, I don't, I have never quizzed my Lyft drivers on um, a sense of purpose, but uh, they could, 
articulate one, I'm sure. Um, but, you know, a connection to people, you know, the the websites for these gig economies often give um, uh, virtual connections, virtual commonplaces for people to share mm -hmm. tips, ideas, frustrations, you know, which creates a connection to people. Connection to routines is certainly possible. And Uber, Uber and Lyft drivers are very serious about their place, which is their car, mm -hmm. right? How it looks, how mm -hmm. it smells, mm -hmm. uh, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I will grant you that uh, the people that are doing gig economy um, and they're controlled by a algorithm mm -hmm. have less of that freedom that we started off talking about. Yes, they're free to work any hours they want, but, you know, the money is so tied to the working hours and specific working hours and specific place, all is controlled by an impersonal algorithm that I don't think they necessarily have the sense of freedom. But yeah. I don't know, maybe some of your listeners will call in and say that they do. Hmm. Yeah. Um, what would you tell people... Where, where should they start? If you know, there are gig workers out there, some of whom might be listening right now, um, and they they might feel the kind of precariousness and anxieties associated with contract work, and um, and uh, perhaps they don't have any kind of collective representation to help you know shore up the safety nets, you know strength. Um, and and certainly the way our current administration is thinking and acting towards you know the idea of providing that sort of uh, protections for people uh, probably certainly adds to that anxiety. What would you say to people who are in these kinds of roles for how they should? Um, cultivate the kinds of connections that, that you found to be helpful in your research? Um, well, you know, all, all I can do is pass on the wisdom of these people, what seems to work for them. Mm -hmm. I mean, in some ways, it's kind of crazy for me to be giving advice to folks who are operating on that end of the spectrum as I live in the most secure job you can get in the country, mm -hmm. right? So a tenured faculty member. Um so it's a little it's a little funny for me to be giving advice. So I look at it as I'm just passing on Granted. their advice. <laughs> okay. Um, and um, so some of it it starts with recognizing that you know there's a graphic I use when I teach the undergraduate. It mm -hmm. says the cavalry's not coming, hmm. right? That you know that yeah you are on your own recognizance, and that can be scary. But to recognize that that is the truth of the matter um, mm -hmm. and so to figure out what you need to be able to be and um, maintain kind of a proactive agentic stance about your life mm -hmm. and your work um, and whether it's you need a lot of a connection to people and you know less on this routines or you need a lot of you know a particular place to work um, and, um, you know, less of a, 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 you know, people around you or in your life uh, supporting you, you know, kind of figuring that out. What is it that 
is most important to making this work for you because it's going to be mm-hmm. idiosyncratic. And that's what's both weird and wonderful about this world. Mm-hmm. And, and so how do you help them develop uh those ideas for action and preparation for their their careers? Well, partly we do it by talking about it. So Just raising you know, their I, consciousness about this being the reality. Right. So I live in a business school. You know, um, most of our undergraduate students get hired by banks and consulting firms. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so in some ways they don't need to know about this. But, you know, there's some estimates that analyst jobs are going to be, um, you know, replaced with artificial intelligence within a decade. And, you know, the the world is precarious, you know, out there. There's a lot of change Mm -hmm. happening. And I think, you know, instead of simply teaching as if this phenomenon is not happening is not the way to go. So we have a class now for a capstone class in our BBA for graduates called Thriving in the New World of Work where we talk a lot about what does it take? How are you going to make this work for you? And and what's the what's the big idea that students derive from it? I'm sure it's you know varied and people take different things from it. What's what's the main thing that you want to make sure people take from that experience? That the cavalry's not coming. Mm-hmm. That that you are the captain you. of your ship. Mm-hmm. and You're in that fighter get... pilot uh, mode in your cockpit there. Or not. I mean, <laughs> if that fighter pilot does it for you, that that would be good. Or not, you know, some other way. But well, the pilot is, I was just... You're the pilot. Mm-hmm. And um, to figure out what you need to be comfortable with that idea. Um, you know, it's mm-hmm. not one I love. I wish we had more large companies and that take care of people from, you know, graduating from college through retirement. But it's just, you know, it's getting to be fewer and fewer as time goes on here. What is it about that model that you wistfully wish for? Well, the wistful side of me is, you know, people have um, predictability. People have um, continuity. People know they can take care of their family. You know, it was not without its ills, right? You know, people were bored to death. People stayed when it wasn't enlivening Mm -hmm. for them at all. They were handcuffed. Yeah, they were handcuffed in a bit. And Mm -hmm. so I think the this new world of work, the gig economy, the um, the fact that you're working independently offers a lot of wonderful elements as well, creative elements, Mm -hmm. etc. But it's it's going to take some work to make the wonderful predominant, you know, and that is trying to forge these connections, for example. Oh, and there there has to be social policy that supports this kind of life, right? You would think. I mean, the, you know, the it's really regrettable that the Affordable Care Act has become so politicized because, you know, Kelly Services, the CEO of Kelly Services is, uh, you know, familiar with our school, comes here a lot, and he says, you know, the fact that we're still delivering health care through major corporations, offering it as benefits, you can just see it's getting further and further out of sync with the reality of how people live. Right. Health care, child care, um, all, all the things retirement. that we need. There's, there's, right. a, there's a big article out right now about retirement 
and what what how these people might think about retirement, prepare for it, et cetera. So people who are in these contract roles, uh, I mean, it's there's bound to be some emergence of you know some form of guild or. Uh, collective uh, gathering so that the you know the power of uh, their numbers gives them greater leverage to uh, to negotiate for such supports, right? Yeah, some people and and now we're venturing into an area that I've certainly listened and okay. read about. I'm I, not an I expert in that either. So I don't know a lot about it, but some people have said it's a little bit back to the future. We're mm-hmm. going back to the guild times, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, where people. Uh, you know, collectively get together, that kind of thing. And the other thing you're seeing is this rise of the co-working space where, mm-hmm. you know, your ability to find people happens right. because you go to a place where other people are working like you. So this is how WeWork gets valued at God knows how many billions of dollars before their IPO. Yeah, exactly. So I want to turn now, Sue, if we can, to uh, another line of research that that you have done and and teaching and practice, and that is about um, the growth of oneself as a leader or the conception of oneself as a leader. Can you tell us a little bit about about that uh, work and what what the big ideas are in it? Yeah. So, um, you know, leadership, you know, when you think about trying to teach leadership, it's not just a skill that you can teach someone, um, that there's a, a way of being as a leader and there's a way of, of how you think about yourself that makes a difference. Um, and so this idea in academic speak is leader identity matters. So one of the things I do with my executives when they come to class is I say, okay, array yourself across the front of the, view, the room. Mm-hmm. By how to what extent is leader part of your identity? Hmm. And there's wide variance. If you ask a room full of executives, is your formally appointed supervisor, your boss, a leader? There's wide variance. You know, a lot of people that are in roles that we would say they're the leaders of the organization aren't actually leading very much. Um, and so I consider it part of my mission to try to help people see themselves as as leaders, see mm-hmm. leaders as part of who they are, mm-hmm. because I think it shapes how they act, whether they're in one of those formally appointed supervisory roles or whether mm-hmm. they're just a member of the team, mm-hmm. but might bring leadership to that team. I see I, that as a part of my mission as well. So tell me more about how you help people to um, discover that idea in their own lives? Um, Well, a couple ways. One is by clarifying how much we have sort of conflated those two things. You know, the leader is the person who holds the role. Ah. So I spend some time just saying, look, this is how we think about this. This is in our culture, our sort of taken for granted Mm -hmm. assumptions that we bring. And then the second is by um, really clarifying what what it means to be a leader and showing how that doesn't um, necessarily need to be done by the person who has supervisory authority, that mm-hmm. anyone could do the things that it that are definitionally what it means to be a leader. Mm-hmm. And then how also, do you define it? Let's, let's get that squared away. Well, I define it, I borrow a definition, which is that a leader, uh, a leadership is social influence. You're trying to influence someone else. Mm-hmm. 
about where we ought to go, mm-hmm. about being motivated to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if we're not trying to go anywhere, the, the other element of social influence is um, what, what should we value? What do we stand for? Mm-hmm. So I think leaders have a role, even if we're not trying to move in a particular direction. But so if that's social influence, where we go, where we should go, hey, guys, let's be motivated to get there. And here's what we stand for. Here's where what we don't stand for. Anyone can do that from anywhere. And in fact, organizations talk about two things. One is we need more leaders from more places. And next, we're really bad at that. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like only 13% say, yeah, we do a good job of that. Um, and partly why they don't do a good job is how they think about leadership development. But that's kind of another element of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, so you help people first to understand that it's not about the role, it's about the person and their capacity to exert influence, social influence, right? to help both inspire uh, and, and to, well, to inspire movement toward a, a better place and, and clarity about uh, what values uh, uh, are common, commonly held among the group. Right. And anybody can do that. Anyone can do that. Uh, so, so then where do you go? to help people uh, you know, become clear about who they are as leaders? Well, um, I actually work with people on a process that I call mindful engagement. And mindful engagement, it starts with this idea that we learn most of what it, if you talk to people who have achieved very high positions and are very well thought of, they will tell you that they learned most of what they, to how to be a leader from the experiences they've had, mm-hmm. not from a book, mm-hmm. for example. That's the contrast. Mm-hmm. So it's their experiences and other people, either people who've mentored them or mm-hmm. people they've observed. Mm-hmm. But then if you watch and you read research, et cetera, about how most people go through experiences, they're not really very mindfully engaged in those experiences. They're not very attentive to those experiences. We're all so busy thinking about where we're going and where we've been that the experience is passing us by. Mm-hmm. And we're not learning a lot about ourselves, how we could be more effective, how we could be more influential. And so um, I actually have a whole process of um ways in which people can go into an experience and decide to both do that experience, whatever they're going to do. They're going to run the meeting. They're going to plan the retreat. They're going to, you know, uh, do the expat assignment, but also to decide to try to put on their agenda their personal growth and development. Mm -hmm. So to really, I have people literally before they go on these experiences to just set a goal. What are you going to work on? You know, where and to set a frame for learning Mm -hmm. rather Mm -hmm. than performance, kind of performing and proving that you're great at everything. Mm -hmm. Be open more to learning. And then things they could do during the experience to get feedback and to uh, try some experiments. And then also I've been doing research on the power of reflection and its role in uh, emerging more as a leader, being more of a leader. Mm And it turns out it makes a difference uh, if you actually step back occasionally and think. 
Yeah. Uh, well, this was certainly, uh, you know, what the, at the Center for Creative Leadership 30 years ago, their major study of uh, how people learn leadership, those, that was the critical element. It was being surrounded by people who were providing a kind of social mirror, support, and data that enabled you to reflect on what you were learning as you were going through the process. And it it really doesn't take a lot more than that to 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 have the mindset that you are there to both perform and to learn how to perform well in the future by reflecting on what's working and of course what's not so so that uh that must be a lot of fun to do that kind of work and especially to the extent that you can bring to bear your expertise on a feedback seeking and and mm. uh, about which I know you have done a lot of work. So in, in the few minutes that we have remaining here, Sue, what could you tell listeners about what's most important in being uh, effective at s- feedback seeking? Right. Uh, well, one is to know that uh, the act of feedback seeking for, uh, across a lot of different contingencies contributes to your effectiveness doesn't detract. People worry about how it looks. Mm -hmm. I will look weak. I will look Mm -hmm. insecure Mm -hmm. if I ask for feedback. But in several different studies that we've done, people actually think more highly of people who seek feedback. I'm talking about a manager is thought of as more effective by her boss, her peers, and her subordinates if she seeks feedback from those people, and if she seems interested in negative or corrective feedback, not just hearing that she's doing a great job, but hearing where, you know, she could do mm-hmm. a little better. People. Why is that? As, is, is that because they de- they're demonstrating a kind of humility and also an eagerness and an openness to learning and demonstrating that, hey, this is how we learn, and I'm interested in doing this, and I want you to do it too? You covered a lot of ground in that one sentence. Yes, exactly. Um, People see it as a sign of openness and a sign of caring about, uh, you know, what Mm -hmm. we think. Um, You know, we just finished a study with CEOs, and CEOs who sought feedback um, had top management teams that felt more empowered, and Mm -hmm. that was associated with higher financial performance for these small firms. They weren't big firms, but they're, you know, there's something about, mm-hmm. you know, there's, the, and we contrasted it with another way of leading, which is to offer a vision for the group, which is a very heroic kind of pro, uh, proactive uh, strategy. And we said, okay, that's one path. You could offer a vision and that had really good outcomes. But if you weren't comfortable being visionary, you didn't have a vision for a group. If you sought feedback your outcomes were just as positive. Mm-hmm. So, so it's kind of an alternative, more humility-based path. All right. So, so one important idea is don't be afraid to ask for feedback. Right. Uh, what else? Uh, what else is is essential for uh, being able to um, gain yeah. the feedback that you must have in order to learn? Yeah. So it's to recognize that. Um, whatever strategy you use to get feedback, it has its costs, and you need to sort of work sort of carefully to mitigate those costs. So the other way we all get feedback all the time is we just monitor the cues around us and interpret a feedback message. So if I'm teaching a class and, 
you know, the entire front row is asleep, I interpret that as feedback. Has, has that ever happened to you, sir? Well, not really. But <laughs> what I, happens so, to me all the time. I no, just kidding. But, but it, that has but that has a problem, right? Because yes. you can get it wrong all the time. So mm-hmm. that's the problem you have to solve with that. Mm-hmm. And I recommend that you look for patterns. Look you know, if patterns. one person falls asleep, it's probably them. If the entire group is asleep, it's right. probably you, right? right? Um, and then asking for feedback also has its problems, especially when you're the boss asking for feedback um, because people feel like they're supposed to tell you what you want to hear. And so you need to try to mitigate that by mm-hmm. how you ask, where you ask, mm-hmm. who you ask, um, that kind of thing, and sort of be thoughtful about it. Um, yeah, you, you need know. to make people feel comfortable telling you that you're full of shit or that you, you know, that, that, and that you want to hear the things that are not going right and that that's going to be helpful to you. You've got to make exactly. it easy for them. Exactly. Yeah. But, the more you can do that, the more um, people like feel invited into your development and, mm-hmm. and uh, feel comfortable giving you the feedback. So, and and yeah. they're probably going to respect and trust you more as, as a result. That's what the data show. But we, we carry around this fear that, uh, you know, we looked at uh, things like if you're the boss and you ask for feedback, does it look bad? No. If, mm-hmm. you know, no difference between boss, you're the peer, you're the subordinate. You know, if you're new to the job, is it okay? But after you've been there for a while, should you never ask? No, it doesn't make any difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about at home? Have you done any studies in non-work roles or non-professional settings? No, I haven't. (laughs) (laughs) All right. That's another conversation. My husband says, thank you for that air corrective feedback a lot, but I'm not so sure he's being actually sincere. (laughs) Mm. Well, is that in his work role or in his family role? role. (laughs) Because I know he's also a colleague, right? He is a colleague, but yeah, it's kind of a joke in our our family when I give him, I ask him, I tell him that he, you know, hasn't cleaned up something he said he was going to say. He thanks me for that error-correcting feedback. Error-correcting? Yeah, error. Error-correcting, yes. Well, error. I hope you will send my best to Jim. Uh, before we wrap up here, there's a question I've been asking all guests on the show this year because it's a topic that I want to just bring uh, more into our consciousness, uh, and that is compassion. Let me ask you, how do you bring compassion to your working life? Oh, to my working life. Well, yeah. I mean, the two different ways. One is very, uh, you know, an introvert's way of doing compassion. In other words, I took a very compassionate approach to everything we learned about these people. You know, I really cared about their lives. And, you know, part of what helped me when I got anxious about doing this work was my sense of purpose about wanting to get their wisdom out there mm-hmm. so that it could help other people. That purpose helped me stay on track, be productive. Mm. But I also felt a real sense of compassion for what they were struggling with and Mm -hmm. and wanting to help. So that's one. And then the second is to recognize in my work world around me that people struggle. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we have a very vibrant doctoral program and doctoral students, you know, they commit, they've been fabulous students (laughs) up to this point and they commit to coming to get a doctorate and it's something brand new and very difficult and very... So you try to be compassionate with them and, and I'm sure 
they benefit greatly from that. And I have to jump in here because we have run out of time, Sue. I'm sorry to say my fault for not uh, ending us just a little bit sooner. Thank you, Sue, so much for joining me. How can people find out more about your work, your research, your books, et cetera? Oh, it's my pleasure. If you just Google me, you'll get to my homepage, and I have a personal uh, website as well as a professional one at the Ross School. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Sue Ashford, for joining me. You're welcome. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.